certainty that he knew he was taking a very great risk. It is not without some misgivings that I let go of my tow rope, he wrote, and commit myself unaided to the waves of life's oceans, propelled only by my own machinery. He would not have to tread water for long. In early April, when the spring rains lashing London's cobblestoned streets still had the bite of winter, Churchill approached the entrance to the House of Commons, a wide, gothic archway cut into the imposing stone face of the Palace of Westminster. Blooming hundreds of feet above him, its reflection wavering in the ruffled surface of the River Thames, was the Clock Tower, one of the most immediately recognisable architectural structures in the world. The Tower, which was only fifteen years older than Churchill himself, was famous not just for its great clock, but for its nearly fourteen-ton bell, nicknamed Big Ben, most likely in honour of Ben Conte, a six-foot-two-inch, two-hundred-pound bare-knuckle boxer who had been the heavyweight champion of England in 1841. As Churchill stepped into the shadow of Big Ben, he knew that waiting for him in the cool, hushed interior of the House of Commons was a man who could open the doors to this iconic seat of political power. One of two members of Parliament for the town of Oldham, in the northwest of England, Robert Ashcroft, with his greying hair, full dark moustache and fine features, not only looked more substantial and respectable than his young visitor, but seemed to be the embodiment of old-world dignity. As he led Churchill through the dimly lit halls and down the narrow stairs to the members-only smoking-room, Ascroft had a gravitas that Churchill, with his feverish ambition and blatant self-promotion, did not yet have, but that they both hoped he could do without. Despite Churchill's youthful energy and awkwardness, when he stepped through the heavy doors that led into the smoking-room, he easily slipped into a world that most Britons not only would never see, but could not even fully imagine. Although this was the House of Commons, more than half its members came from the British aristocracy. To most young men, the room alone, with its soaring ceilings, panelled walls, casually scattered chest tables and curved wooden chairs upholstered in rich leather and tarnished brass tacks, would be imposing, even awe-inspiring. For Churchill, it was, in reputation at least, as familiar as his own childhood. Although this was not yet his world— it had long been his father's. Lord Randolph Churchill, the brilliant, talented, and arrogant third son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough, had had an extraordinary political career, made even more remarkable by the fact that he had lived to be only forty-five years old. He had won his first seat in Parliament in 1874, the same year in which he had married an American beauty named Jenny Jerome, and his first child, Winston, had been born. By the time he was thirty-six, he was Secretary of State for India. A year later, the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, appointed him Leader of the House of Commons and Chancellor of the Exchequer, just one position below Salisbury himself. Although Churchill had never had the close relationship with his father that he longed for, he had been fiercely proud of Lord Randolph's public position and had dreamed of one day becoming, if not a trusted adviser, at least a help to him in his meteoric career. To me, Churchill would write years later, he seemed to own the key to everything, or almost everything, worth having. He would never forget walking down the street as a child, and watching as men doffed their hats in respect as his father passed by. He scanned the papers, hungrily reading every mention of Lord Randolph's name, every quotation from his speeches, every word of criticism or admiration.
Everything he said, even at the tiniest bazaar, was reported verbatim in all the newspapers, Churchill would proudly recall, every phrase being scrutinized and weighed. When at Harrow, the public school he attended as a boy, Churchill had repeatedly begged his mother to send him not just his father's autographs, but even her own, so that he could give, or perhaps sell them, to his classmates. Lord Randolph's career, however, had been as brief as it was blazing. The darling of democracy, one contemporary writer called him, a wayward genius who flashed across the political firmament like a dazzling meteor burning himself out too soon. Famously outspoken and sharp-tongued, he had, from the beginning of his tenure as Chancellor of the Exchequer, publicly and unapologetically disagreed with many of the other members of Lord Salisbury's administration. When his first budget was rejected, Randolph, in a cold rage, had written Salisbury a letter of...